Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Fellow maze rats, assemble. Ready your breakfast and eat hearty, my rat comrades. Tonight we dine at the end of the maze. chance, but then they change the maze, make it harder. They would not do that. They do stuff like that all the time. Yeah, but there would be no honor in that. Was I supposed to urinate just now? Because I did. Okay, everybody, I got this, all right? I've replayed this maze a hundred times. I've developed a model, an algorithm, which anticipates 538 variables and adjusts for them. We're gonna be fine. Now let's go get that maze. Let's know the taste of freedom! Get the, the maze. maze. Off Off we go into the wild The truth is, I got no clue how this maze works, but that's no way to live, right? Today on the show, we analyze the year of unexpected outcomes. And now he bet on fair and balanced to win the Kentucky Derby. Colin McEnroe. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the show after that. All right. So, well, what what are we doing today? Well, we are we we've got this thing that we that we've been referring to as the year of unexpected outcomes. Let me just say this: um, our anchor guest today is Mike Pesca. He's the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. I listen to The Gist every day. Uh, Mike and I think 
in a similar way about certain things. And so sometimes I'm not entirely sure which ideas are his and which ideas actually came from me. I think the responsible thing to do under those circumstances is to claim that they're all my ideas. Uh, but one thing that Mike has also talked about is that, you know, it's really kind of a year to the day uh, because a, a year ago today, Leicester City, while you weren't paying any attention, overcame at least betting odds of 5,000 to 1 to win the English Premier League in what they call football. And since then, this whole... Well, let's actually, before we bring Mike aboard, let's hear a montage. I, I love a nice montage. So Leicester fans, of course, joining in the celebrations. The team started this season as 5,000 to 1 underdogs to win the title. I'm excited, cautiously optimistic. I think things are looking good for Hillary at this point. Final seconds. It's over. It's over. Cleveland is a city of champions once again. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. And CNN projects Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. Donald Trump will carry the state of Wisconsin. The UK has voted to leave the European Union, a historic vote with very deep and long-lasting. It's in time, and the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come That's remarkable. Uh, and, uh, I mean, this is, this is truly the beginning of the end for Hillary Clinton's campaign. He's in! Patriots win the Super Bowl! Brady has his fifth! Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president. This, there's a mistake. The Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm ecstatic tonight that, that Donald Trump has won. Um, I, I almost can't believe it. Uh, I, I really thought you know we were going to be looking at a big Hillary landslide tonight. Moonlight, Best Picture. All right, so Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. Did we miss anything? Uh, just the turkey-flavored food pellets. Yeah, along, <laughs> along the way, I suppose that there were tiny little surprises uh, that always happens. Um, but yeah, it's just that all the biggest sporting events. Well, I guess this was a little outside the year, but there was a comeback. Uh, Villanova won the NCAA tournament, mm -hmm. at least for a time that seemed to be surprising. Yeah, it, it is just such a remarkable year. Uh, a funny thing is that some of those uh, supposed upsets weren't real upsets. Some of those supposed upsets were unbelievably, you know, mathematically provable. Like, I don't really think the Patriots could have come back except that they did. Right. And so it's a, mis it's a mishmash of us not understanding the odds, us understanding the odds and them being really amazing, or us understanding the odds and just thinking, I can't believe the Cubs won, even though they were never nearly as down as, say, the Patriots were. Well, and there's a lot of things that we have to kind of um, unthread from one another. But um, I, when you say things that maybe weren't all that improbable, I mean, we probably overestimated the improbability of Brexit, right? Brexit probably was more probable than we were saying it was. That's the, be that's the best example. Um, and the guys at 538 will always tell you because they've been getting inundated with shows what you smart people have to know. And Harry Enten and those guys will always say, before Brexit, the odds said or the polls said that Brexit was going to happen. It didn't say it by much. The betting markets didn't agree, but those are people who are laying uh, wagers. But the actual polls indicated before Brexit, right before Brexit, that it was going to happen. So there you go. 
So, um, and, and I think that another thing that we have to we have to separate one thing from another. So there are some things where we we stand at the threshold of that thing and try to gauge its probability. So I mean, the presidential election or Brexit would be an example of that. And then there are other things, and, and particularly in this age of sports uh, metrics, where because of these things like win expectancy or win probability that that go into the game or go into a series, um, the fact that it's improbable. I mean, it wasn't improbable before the Super Bowl started that the Patriots were going to win, right? It just as things went along, it became more and more improbable that they would win. It went up to you know ninety three, ninety six percent based on who who you believed in. Can you, for people who don't know about that, explain how that happens or why that happens? There are, and it, by the way, I think the Super Bowl was the most improbable at one point, it, unless if you count the point where um, where Moonlight had already lost the Academy Award. Like at the moment that some other, it was uh, La La Land, was up on stage accepting the Academy Award. Yeah, that's that, the most improbable. Right. I think I think I think you said on the gist at that point, La La Land had a one hundred percent chance of winning, and they yeah, still didn't it would win. Seem. Yeah. You couldn't measure it. Okay, so in-game probability, uh, there are a few ways to calculate it. The kind of dumbest but cleanest way is to just load in every other game that's ever happened and see at this point in a 25 to 14 game with this much time left and which whichever team has possession how often does a comeback occur smarter uh, calculations will also factor in the strength of the relative teams so if you're talking about the Patriots maybe you'd uh, up their chances of having a comeback versus say the Detroit Lions so from that an in-game probability of when the Falcons were leading. Um, I've seen estimates far above 99% that the Falcons would have won that game just based on everything that's ever happened before. Um, You know, we're all human beings. I mean, we all want to be smart, too. And I like 538 and I like Harry Enten. But there's a part of me that has seen a kind of erosion in my belief about data science. Like, I know that there are really good explanations for why I shouldn't just because of all these things, uh, that that shouldn't make me become a disbeliever or or a skeptic about data science. I, I don't know. How, how are you handling those kinds of dissonances? Yes, and I've thought about this a lot. I think that um, the data, the good data scientists themselves would say that they are uh, an example of being skeptical about certainty in science. So 538 and Nate was saying again and again that when we're giving our prediction of uh, Hillary's chances of winning being in the high 60s, that is a correction to the New York Times account, which was saying 90, and also, you know, that Princeton consortium, really just that one neurologist guy, who was saying it was 99%. That's ridiculous. I think the, I, I think that we should have uh, faith in data science so long as it you know, continues to acknowledge its flaws. But one flaw that even 538 is not acknowledging is that it is, it is mockable to come up with that amount of precision. So it is mockable to say our model moved 0.5 points, our model moved 1.1 points. It is crazy to say that she really she has a 68% chance of winning. Are you sure it's not 71? Well, it might be 71. Are you sure it's not 63? Yeah, just as likely to be 63. So basically what they're saying, they they move around these numbers so you keep going to the website. But it would have been fair to say, I think she has a very strong chance of winning, just not overwhelming. But what are you going to do? Like update very strong to not overwhelming? You're going to color code it like, like the old uh, terrorism warning system? I mean, that's why you have numbers, and that's why you have tenths of numbers, which gets even even crazier. The, uh, we haven't gotten to that level of uncertainty 
um, you know, that level of precision with our uncertainty, it probably doesn't exist. And the last thing I would say is I used to have a lot more faith in the betting markets, Mm -hmm. but the betting markets are just a poor translator of things like um, 538's model. And when the betting markets, Leicester City was 5,000 to 1. Well, there were only 20 teams in the English Premier League. So the reason they were 5,000 to 1 wasn't that they really only had a 1 in 5,000 chance. It was, you know, a bookie to get some action on Leicester City, put up a number that was way too big. You know, it was too big, not just because they won, but I think a rational person would say, well, that's definitely an order of magnitude too big. And I used to have a lot of faith in the betting markets, and now I almost, if there's a good prediction model, I almost totally discount the betting markets. Right. So that's the, you just described the flaw in the betting markets and why that 5,000 to 1 thing, I think you know, serious people don't really ultimately take it seriously, although the serious people at 538 do cite it all the time. Um, but I think the other, the other implicit ne- aspect of the, of the betting markets is our belief that when something is on the line, that there's a kind of hive mentality, a collective wisdom uh, that begins to do some maybe intuitive sort, something that's a little bit harder to quantify, that somehow or other, if people have skin in the game, they have money uh, on something, they are going to think about this in a much more calculated and calculating way. But I I suppose that's all kind of, you know, uh, that's kind of, you know, fairies flying around the sky that I'm talking about right now. Oh, no, I I think that if that is the only thing I had to go by, um, if there was just no precision in polling, but there were betting markets saying that, you know, they thought that Hillary was going to win. And then there were a bunch bunch of pundits, you know, driven by their own agendas predicting who was going to win. I definitely go with the betting markets. But the betting markets are informed by good polling and good polling is aggregated by an aggregator site like 538. So my hierarchy would be a really good aggregator site, a 538-esque site, then the polls I trust most and then under that the betting markets and the betting so why trust the betting markets if you have the other two things um another thing we have to acknowledge is that certain things will eventually happen there are some things that will never happen i i used to have this editor when i was a young newspaper writer who had this thing called the three minute mile rule which you know people walk into newspaper offices and claim all kinds of things all the time and he would say look if someone comes in and says you ran a mile in three minutes i mean you can spend all you can go out to the track with them if you really want to but he didn't, you know, so so don't waste your time on that unless you happen to have a lot of time on your hands. So there's that kind of thing. But then you take something like the NBA playoffs. Well, it just turns out that being three down three to one in the NBA playoffs in the finals was something that you couldn't come back from prior to last year. That if you were down three to one, it had happened, I think, 33 previous times and no but no team had ever come back. I think no team might have even ever come back to tie the series 3-3. But that just means that's going to happen at some point, right? The, the fact that it's never happened is not a reason to believe it will never happen. Yeah, I mean, 33 times is not the greatest sample size. And also, of those 33 times, how many times was LeBron James involved? And I would also say with the Patriots, there's maybe one quarterback on earth who I would say, well, I'm worried, but not extremely worried, and that's Tom Brady. Mm. The thing that really kills me is that I now have to put Donald Trump in that category, (laughs) right? Well, we are talking about LeBron James, Tom Brady, and the other great comeback kid, Donald Trump. I just want to go back to that idea when you were talking about, you know, maybe the let's discount what the betting markets say. Mm-hmm. We um, I was just thinking about yesterday. Trump floated this idea. Maybe I'll undo Glass-Steagall and the markets, which is, you know, the stock markets, mm-hmm. an example of a betting market, essentially said, yeah, we don't believe you. And it's so I, I think the markets are 
exactly right. So we, in our daily lives, what the betting markets have to say or what people with actual skin in the game have to say, do dictate outcomes or do, you know, show us what probabilities are. And they're more right than wrong. And the last thing I would say about all this is, you know, we do have this tendency that it was a year of upsets. And yet, and yet, uh, Geert Wilders lost in the Netherlands. (laughs) And yet... Hillary did beat Bernie. So I, I thought Hillary would win the general election. And on the gist, I kind of was maybe over reassuring. I never said it was certain, but I thought it was overwhelmingly likely. And, you know, people rightly criticized me for that. But uh, my girlfriend did point out, well, you also said the same. You were just as certain that Hillary was going to win, if not more certain that she was going to beat Bernie. And you were right about that. I'm like, yes, that is true. All these things that we say won't happen, uh, so many of them don't happen. And for every Leicester City that wins with 5,000 to one odd, Come on, the Jets aren't going to win this season. So you know, back to the betting markets, too. I mean, one thing that bookmakers have done is uh, change the odds of, speaking of Donald Trump, of Donald Trump being impeached or of Donald Trump simply not finishing his term, right? Uh, the odds have shortened recently uh, to 11 to 10, I think, against him uh, making it all the way through a full four-year term. And this is, of course, I think it's Ladbrokes, which is the same place that did 5,000 to 1 uh, on uh uh, on Lester. Um, but, you know, I mean, you look at something like that and you think, well, what's that even based on? Once again, it feels like it almost has to be based a little bit on gut. Yeah, I think it's probably based on them putting out a number that gets attention. Um, I don't know how big the markets are. I don't think that their exposure is so big. I mean, what they want, how a, a bookie sets a line, is you try to have the equal no, equal amount of money on both sides. But when it's an enormous line like 5,000 to 1, if those extreme long shots that you just put out there in a version of hang, hanging a, a shingle and trying to get some attention, if any of those extreme long shots come in, bookies always take a bath. But in general, what a bookmaker is trying to do is not actually predict the outcomes. They're just trying to gauge where an equal amount of money will be on both sides. So it's that's where the public or the betting public thinks is a reasonable chance. But I do also think with like the, these American election markets, it's more about uh, trying to draw attention to yourself from uh, the uh, sites like Paddy Power or Ladbrokes. All right. So speaking of skin in the game, and this might be something that you don't know about because of which team, uh, which baseball team I happen to know that you root for. Um, but there's a company called Jordan Furniture, uh, and they run a promo. I think just I think they've run a promo for many consecutive years now. Let's hear uh, one of their commercials. In 2007, the Red Sox swept the world championship, and 25,000 Jordan's customers got over $30 million in free furniture. Well, we're doing it again. So if you need furniture or a mattress, now is the time. This season, if the Sox sweep the world championship, All of your furniture and mattresses will be free. That's right, free. And this year, you can also get up to 60 months, no interest with no minimum. The Sock Sweep, you win. All right. So, uh, and the way that that works is you have to buy the furniture from some date in March to some date in April. Uh, you lock it in, uh, and and so in 2007, I mean, he, he had to pay out on that. Now, one thing that I did find out, Mike, is that Jordan's Furniture, the parent company, is Berkshire Hathaway. So that's Warren Buffett, who also does this March Madness challenge for his employees, where you can win a million dollars a year if you correctly name all of the Sweet 16. And I. <laughs> I don't know what to make of all this, except there's an example of a guy who presumably has to go to Lloyd's or some other insurance company and say, what do I have to pay you to indemnify me against this happening? 
Yes, that's exactly how it works. There are these reinsurers and their businesses to insure, promote crazy promotions like that or uh, half-court shots or the, the long shot into the tiny hole in hockey. They, they all have insurance. And so it just becomes arbitrage at that point. And the, I, I assume that the insurer knows more about baseball than the guy from Jordan's Furniture, for instance, knows it's called the World Series, not the World Championship. But putting that aside, they will discern the odds probably by looking at what the odds are in Vegas. They will uh, give a price that's worse than the Vegas odds. They may even lay off some of their money, you know, a re-reinsurance where if they, you know, underwrite three companies offering a Red Sox sweep, maybe they'll put some money on something other than a Red Sox sweep in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. We, we thought it, we wondered about the same thing, but I sort of wondered if World Series is a licensable term. That, like maybe he didn't pay any money yeah. to anybody and just thought, if I call it the World Championship, who's going to come after me? Right. Maybe he has a World Series, a Super Bowl, and an Olympics uh, bet, and one is called the World Championship, the other is called the Big Game, and the third is called the Festival of Nations. <laughs> All right. So we're talking to Mike Pesca. He's the host of uh, Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, which you have to stop, start listening to if you haven't. Uh, and uh, I already know what it's about today. It's going to be very funny. You have to listen to it. Uh, all right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to add a cognitive science scientist to our conversation and uh, up the erudition level ever so slightly. Hi, we're talking about the year of unexpected outcomes or the era of unexpected outcomes. We'll kind of find out soon, I guess. I mean, we might find out at the Kentucky Derby. Uh, might be our next opportunity if Profiteer or some, no, Sonneteer. I'm sorry. I think Sonneteer has long odds. Some horse with long odds uh, does it. Maybe maybe it keeps going. Maybe it's all over. Maybe we just made the whole thing up. Uh, no matter what, Mike Pesca is the host of Slate's Daily Podcast. I know that's true on an ongoing and continuing basis. Uh, and that is called The Gist. He's with us right now. Uh, Jim Davies is joining us at Cognitive Science at Carleton University in Ottawa and the author of Riveted, Riveted The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe. Um, so, uh, so, Jim Davies, first of all, welcome to the conversation that Mike and I are having. Thank you so much. So when one thing that we know is that when these unexpected outcomes happen, it's often quite shocking, almost emotionally shocking to people. So, I mean, when Donald Trump got, became elected president uh, of the United States in 2016, it was upsetting to some people because they didn't want him to be president. But there was a, an, another wave of shock just in the sense that it defied so many predictions, that there was so much numerical evidence, so to speak, sitting there saying it wasn't going to happen. So what can you tell us about that? Why do why do we react in the way that we do when something happens that, quote unquote, isn't supposed to happen? Uh, yeah. So, you know, getting, um, you know, the people getting upset, of course, that only applies to the people who didn't want Trump to be president. Right. right. So, you know, when, when when something happens to you unexpected, that's really good, uh, even though it's completely unexpected, it's usually an overall positive emotional response that you get to it. Um, some people find, you know, th that it's a little bit stressful in a very mild way uh, because it's just unexpected and chaotic, but usually the, the good uh, overpowers the bad for that. So, um, but, but on the other hand, I think we're pattern seekers, right? And so when yeah. we, I mean, it's a, well, you, you can say more about this. It's adaptive for us to be creatures who seek out patterns. 
Yeah, so, you know, we are creatures who are born being able to do almost nothing, and uh, we have to learn over time how to adapt to the environment, and we're taken care of by our parents for many years. And what that means is that any uh, person who's born who doesn't have any curiosity for how to figure out how the world works is not going to make it. Uh, so we end up with this really uh, very deep evolutionary drive to learn things that um, makes us seek out patterns all over the place. And you know, this explains why we play Sudoku puzzles or crossword puzzles or things like that. Um, but it also, you know, makes us seek patterns. And, some, you know, we're a little bit hypersensitive to it. So we'll often see patterns where there aren't any. Right. So let's go to lots of different biases. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back to Mike on this. So and this is an interesting thing, Mike, because sometimes the people who know the most about something are the people who are the most irrational about it. And I have in my mind athletes, Um, athletes who who doubtless really do understand quite a bit about why they get a hit or don't get a hit, nonetheless are ascribing uh, significance to all kinds of crazy patterns. What do you make of that, Mike? But also some of the most scientifically inclined athletes, you know, Wade Boggs, who could break down a pitcher and is the master of his craft, will also eat a whole chicken before every meal because of superstition. So I think it's a yin and a yang working together, you know. Maybe it's trying to have exert some control over the parts of the, their task that they know they have no control over. So Wade Boggs can say, I could do all these things right, and maybe the uh, fielder will be positioned in the right place, so therefore my chicken will will, uh, you know, occupy that part of my soul that I could give over to anxiety and what I don't know. But if I could ask Jim Davies, past just get a question, it was fascinating when you said, you know, the mild exuberance that people feel. How long does that last? Could that explain the Trump's ongoing popularity with his base? I know it's other things, but I just haven't heard that before, that one reason why Trump seems not to have lost anyone who voted for him is just that they were so surprised by the fact that he won and they like that feeling. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I don't really know of any science that would speak to that. It doesn't seem like, um, the sh- you know, we, we habituate to things very quickly. Um, and I think that the, 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 the goodness of getting your candidate elected is something that can last. But this, the, the surprise combined with the goodness, it doesn't, doesn't strike me as something that would last a very long time. But I, I have to say, I don't really uh, know of any science to back that up. Well, uh, let me, I, actually, I think Mike's on to something really interesting, at least from our lay point of view, Jim, which is, that we know that when some of these unpredictable things happen, dopamine's released in the brain. And Trump keeps doing stuff where people like me and Mike and the, the pundits say, nobody does that. that ne- presidents don't do that. that. That doesn't happen. Nobody talks like that. Are we getting or, or is somebody getting little jolts, jolts of dopamine every time that happens? Yeah, sure. And uh, opioids, too. You know, the, the, the dopamine system... Um, is thought of as pleasure, but it's also uh, compulsion and activity. So you'll uh, often find that when people um, get something, they figure out a pattern, they have um, like a pleasure response, which is the opioid system. Um, but when they're seeking pleasure, they have the dopamine system, which is um, in its extreme forms what we have addictive behaviors, where you're doing something, you might not even be getting pleasure out of it. You just can't sort of stop doing it. And, you know, and then one thing that causes addictive behaviors and, and uh, in, uh, reinforcement is something called intermittent reinforcement. So, you know, when somebody you like <laughs> has a lot of hits and misses, you know, I, you know a lot of Trump supporters don't like everything he does, um, you know, that can, that can certainly affect their dopamine system and make them, uh, 
more compulsive about, you know, their activity toward Trump. Pesca, is this helpful? Yeah, and I also think there's probably some oxytocin involved, like bonding together with the like group. It's all explained by chemicals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, at some level, it is, yeah. Well, would, um, people, would, yeah, Jim, wouldn't it, that also be the case? I know this is something that you've uh, at least observed. That whole question of like seeing people see the face of Jesus in a tortilla or on the side of an elm tree or something like that. The face of Jesus clearly, well, I think I think probably isn't there. So, but I assume that's also chemicals, right? They're getting some reward for seeing that. So, what's really interesting about that is, you know, we we do see patterns where there aren't any, but notice that you never look at a picture of Jesus and think you see toast. <laughs> right? so, so what's happening is that we, we, we mis- make mistakes in particular directions, right? You never, you never walk in a zoo and look in a tiger cage and say, oh, my God, I thought that was a bag of garbage. You know, it, it's, it's always you mistake it for the things that are, uh, could potentially help or hurt you, right? Yeah. And something that's particularly meaningful for you, like a, a dead body lying on the road or the face of Jesus or your mother, or, you know, something really good or bad, that's what you make the errors for. So we're always seeking out things that are good and bad for us, and that's the direction with which we make these mistakes. So and it turns out that people who have high dopamine um, find more patterns. So what they'll do is there's an experiment where they have they show people degraded faces, which means it's, it's uh, so pixelated that you can barely tell if there's a face there or not. And uh, people who have higher dopamine, and interestingly, people who are more religious, see more faces than skeptics. They also see faces, more faces that aren't there. And if you give skeptics dopamine, they start seeing faces as though they were religious. Um, Mike, do you want to call Stephen Wright with the Jesus toast joke, or should I call him? Or I mean, somebody should tell Stephen Wright uh, about this joke and about go. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say that we would definitely see faces in the cloud, but maybe this explains Magritte's genius. He was the first to put a cloud on someone's face. Right. And I also assume that there are chickens who have some, uh, some superstitions about how to avoid Wade Boggs. But um, but so Mike. I, I want to come back Lost to the inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to come back to this sort of notion of, of loss of faith in pattern. So um, I was like you and like a lot of people, very uh, enamored of big data and the idea of big data being able to predict certain things. And I certainly was a huge subscriber to the theories and observations espoused by Nate Silver and other people at 538. And now I'm looking about what they say, what they say about Marine Le Pen in the French election, where Nate Silver is saying that Marine Le Pen is, quote, I think, in a much deeper hole than Trump ever was. And I'm thinking, what, what do I care? <laughs> Why do I care? The, what I mean, and I, I, I want to ask both of you, but I'll start with you, Mike. I mean, that's we're back to that kind of punch in the stomach, that kind of loss in uh, of faith, at least for me, in these kinds of things. Well, I think that we have to rebut a hyper-rational worldview or positing of how the world works, which is 538's, you know, 64% chance, with more rationality, not with the idea nothing matters anymore. And, you know, if you look at the polls, this 60-whatever percent chance that 538 was very conservative about giving Trump, it was all based on him being, everyone knew that the polls showed that he was within 4 or 5%, and almost everyone knows what a margin of error meant. So it's not so ridiculous to say, let us compare that set of very good and well done polls versus the set of polls in France, which shows Marine Le Pen behind uh, monumentally. Right. Trump was never behind in the polls in the Republican race. He was only a little bit behind in the Democratic race. I mean, these things still have salience. And the last thing I'd say about Nate is like, are we sure he's wrong? He said that 
Hillary Clinton had a 60-something percent chance of winning. How do we know he was wrong? Things that happen 35% of the time happen like a third of the time. Right. That's called calibration, I think, in, uh, in the well, need. Yeah, point, go ahead, Jim. I mean, yeah. even if it could be true that Hillary Clinton had a 90% chance of winning, just because Trump won doesn't mean that there wasn't a 90% chance it would have been Hillary. We can't tell with just one outcome what the chance was. All we know is what happened. Right. And, and I think one of the things that it has led to is this kind of uh, fake agnosticism. Uh, Mike, you probably followed over the weekend the debut of Brett Stevens, uh, his column in The New York Times. And he begins that way. He begins with this incredible false equivalency, so talking about all the ways in which Hillary Clinton was supposedly locked in to win this election and it didn't happen. And then making a transfer of that to climate science, saying, you know, if it, it can't achieve a certainty either and therefore we shouldn't pay any attention to it. Yeah, and we do this all the time. I mean, I was just having this conversation with my girlfriend who likes acupuncture. I'm sure, fine, I'll take acupuncture. And then she did this thing called applied kinesiology where someone like puts a vial of uh, sugar on your stomach and touches your arm. And I said, that, that's crazy, honey. And she said, that's what people said about acupuncture. And so we're getting the same thing with Trump, right? This is crazy to think this unlikely event could happen. Crazy like they said Trump couldn't win? Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, sorry, I could spend the, the next hour explaining the difference in the craziness, but I think I'm already talking to, you know, a mindset that is not the most receptive to empiricism. Um, Jim Davies, uh, last thing I want to ask you about is, uh, is streaks, um, things, uh, a lot of things happening in a row. Now, some, some streaks are random. Some are not so random. The UConn women's basketball team put together an incredible streak of wins. But, you know, we knew at some point that that streak was going to end, and, and then it did uh, this year in the semifinals of the uh, basketball championships. But other streaks are random. Let's hear, well, let's hear the beginning of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. You're going to see, see, I think you see Rosencrantz flipping a coin. Heads. 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 One should think of the future. It's the normal thing. To have one. One is, after all, having one all the time. Now. And now. <laughs> and now. It could go on forever. Well, not forever, I suppose. That's uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, actually, is Rosencrantz. So, Jim Davies, one of the things that we, we have all kinds of um, implicit ideas about patterns, and one of the things that Stoppard does in that play is suggest that they're in some other place where it's just the coin is always going to come up heads. But um, maybe you're just going to sketch out what our fallacies are against the realities of streaks when, in fact, outcome is completely random, not determined by athletic ability or something like that. Right. So first of all, people are really bad at knowing what's random and what's not. And um, people think that any, uh, well, not any streak, but people different, how many, for example, how many heads in a row would, would you have to get on a coin for you to start being suspicious that it, there was a trick mm -hmm. or it was, a, it was a, a not fair coin? And people differ in what that number is. Um, but in general, everybody's number is less than what it should be. <laughs> because if you were to flip a coin 100 times, and list the heads and tails, there would be many more long streaks than you would have guessed. Mm -hmm. So people think there's a pattern right away. Uh, and so we should all be 
you know, as part of our psychological immune system, we should all be very cautious when we think we see a pattern because there probably isn't one. And, and this even goes for, for, for thinking we see patterns of predictions not coming true. So you know, it, like you might yeah. think, oh, lately there have been a lot of predictions not coming true. Well, maybe not. It could be <laughs> the result of a completely random process. We just happen to be in a streak that's meaningless. Right. All of a sudden, we're lighting on what happened in the EPL, which we never would have, except some <laughs> unusual thing happened in the EPL. Uh, that's the English Premier League. Also, I'd add to it that we're really bad just in terms of intuiting math, I find, especially with uh, events happening in a row. So I was watching this NBA game where there was an 80% foul shooter, and uh, twice down the stretch he was fouled, and he made two, and then the next time down he made one of two. So in other words, he missed one out of four foul shots, and the announcer said, oh, you don't expect that from an 80% foul shooter. Yes, you do. <laughs> the odds of an 80% foul shooter hitting... Uh, all four are, you know, only around 40%. So we don't understand things in a row happening. No, we don't. All right. Well, we do understand that we have to uh, stop here and go to a break and come back and talk to a physicist about all this. I want to thank Jim Davies. I want to thank uh, Mike Pesca. Make sure you listen to The Gist, his wonderful uh, show. on, And you'll find out ex exactly how many ideas I do steal from Mike. And I just want to say sometimes I'm not completely aware that I'm doing that. All right. We'll be back after this. Thanks, Mike. There's a 92% chance that 78% of today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, Josh Nalea, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is a 50 to 1 shot to win the Kentucky Derby, but only if there's a lot of rain. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steph Curry. On tomorrow's show, unless something unexpected happens, we'll do a show about the afterlife. And now, back to Colin. Also, quickly, uh, tomorrow's show will be one of the shows, as we do occasionally, as often as we can. We are translating it into American Sign Language. If you go to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, um, you'll see a Facebook Now stream. It'll be live, coterminous with the show uh, of interpreters doing our show in American Sign Language. We're trying to do what we call Radio for the Deaf, which we understand most people have never tried to do. Uh, in fact, nobody's ever tried to do it as far as we can tell. Anyway, w w the last thing we want to talk about here today as we look at this whole question of unexpected outcomes, seemingly improbable outcomes, um, is what we know about it at the level of mathematics and science. Joining us now is um, is Leonard Mlodino. Did I just say that right? Mlodino? Mlodino. Mlodino. Okay, I didn't, I didn't do a very good job at all. Physicist, science writer, and the author of several uh, books, including The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives, and Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. Um, I want to start with the notion, and, and, and there is such a notion that has been kicking around for centuries, that if we knew everything, if we knew everything about every particle in the universe, we could know everything that was going to happen. In other words, all of the things that we've talked about on this show today, things that seem random, surprising, unexpected, would in fact assume a much more predictable kind of form. What's the state of scientific thinking about that? Well, in our macroscopic world, the world that we live in, that's absolutely true. So if you knew what we call the state of the system, that is where every little particle is, 
and what speed it's at, go, it's moving at, or whether it's standing still at a particular moment. And you knew Newton's laws, which governed that. And you had a big enough computer that could grind through those laws and through all the equations. And you could predict both the future and the past to uh, whatever accuracy you'd like to and however far out you'd like to predict it. Now, in reality, what we learn about the world is that we don't have control over this over the system to to have the conditions be whatever we might want them to be or the knowledge of what they actually are or a computer big enough to do the calculation. So in reality, even though in principle everything is determined, and that's why it's called determinism, in, in actuality it's not and we're, we're just in the dark. Now on another level, that was the macroscopic level that, that governs the physics of the objects we interact with in everyday life. And if you, if you look on a deeper level, on the atomic level, it works a little bit differently, and there's that famous quantum randomness. But the quantum randomness in systems that have made of many particles, like your body or a baseball or whatever other macroscopic objects you encounter in everyday life, and those objects, uh, many particle objects which are made of many quantum particles, that quantum nature washes out, and we are left with Newton's law. So they may as well, the quantum nature may as well not even be there. It doesn't affect us in our everyday life. Right. It doesn't affect, in other words, quantum behavior doesn't affect the flight of a baseball. As no, it doesn't. No, it affects us in everyday life in the sense that uh, scientists who design computers use the quantum laws on the chips that are inside the computer, but in and things bigger than those nanoparticle kind of scale chips, uh, it doesn't affect us. Although the other thing that I wondered about, and this is a little woo-woo too, and it probably doesn't hold up that well in reality, is the, the so-called measurement problem, right? So that we know that... Um, uh, measurement can, so to speak, collapse waveform under certain circumstances. And there's even a theory among physicists that it has something to do with consciousness, although, I mean, very few physicists subscribe to that. But so, there is kind of a, a sub-theory about that, that, that it's almost as though reality resists being measured. I assume, first of all, to whatever extent that's true, it's all also only true at the quantum level. Correct. So... That is, people puzzle, philosophers puzzle about quantum theory, and in the time that we have, it's hard to really get into it too deeply. But when the quantum theory was first invented, there was that measurement problem because the people who invented it uh, invented a theory that would describe an experiment that somebody is doing. So the experiment is quantum. The person who's doing it and measuring it is classical, is, is macroscopic, and there was this border between the two. That's just the way the theory was originally invented. We, we've kind of learned to go past that now. It's still a philosophical problem, but it's not at all a problem in, in applying the theory, and it certainly isn't a problem when you look at everyday life. And people who talk about consciousness and quantum theory are, are misguided because the brain is pretty much exclusively a classical system. It's too... Um, the, 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 the processes that go on involve too many particles. It's too high a temperature for quantum effects uh, to be very important. Can we then talk in a non-quantum way about the brain? Because the, uh, Yeah, the, we, we can talk about that all day. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there, I'm not saying that you can't interact with the brain in, in quantum you, you yeah. know, ways, like, like MRI machines do that. They, they use quantum theory to interact with certain molecules in the brain. But in, in normal brain processes with neuron firing, th th those are classical. But I'm also so let's let's get out of the quantum realm and, and uh, up into this one. When we talk about the human brain, the human mind, I mean, first of all, people are very interested in the question of free will. Do they have free will? Um, well, well, I'll just ask that question. I mean, scientific. Our, what's our scientific understanding of free will? Well, 
that's a matter of opinion, but uh, scientists, almost every scientist believes that nature, that the world is governed by law and that there's nothing outside of the laws of nature that, that govern uh, what happens in the world. And if you believe that, then you have to believe in a kind of uh, determinism which precludes free will. Um, because if you believe in the laws of nature govern your brain, let's say, then the future of your brain is determined by its present and the application of those laws. There's no room for your brain to make either decision A or decision B based on some soul or outside force making a decision. It's all, uh, it's all the result of processes in your brain that are governed by the laws of nature. But on the other hand, uh, we have the illusion of free will, and, and uh, Stephen Hawking and I wrote a book, um, and we called, it, we called it an effective theory, because effectively you have free will, because it feels like you have free will, because you cannot do those calculations, you cannot know what your brain is going to do, and so it's moving ahead based on things that you don't know, and, and in terms of your experience and your feelings of the world, uh, it's just as if we have free will. But again, to this demon that, that knows everything, all-knowing, all-powerful calculator, uh, that that demon would be able to actually tell you in advance. Ten years from now, Leonard, you're going to be crossing the street. A car is going to be coming, and you're going to jump out of the way. You're going to decide to jump out of the way. Um, no, I can't know that. However, you can't know that, but you do believe. I mean, you know, in other words, the, the biomechanistic view of consciousness basically says we just don't know um, everything that we need to know. But if we did know everything that we needed to know about human consciousness, there would be nothing about it that we couldn't explain. That's where you are, right? Right. Um, and, and so that does mean that, that, yes, at some level, not at the level of what you can know, but what the, what the, at the level of what this you know, meta-macro demon could know, that, that things are foreordained. There, 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 there really isn't any way for you to get out of the way of that car. Well, there is or there isn't. You, you'll do what you'll do. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you, your brain is a complicated um, object and that you have conscious thought and decision and you have unconscious uh your unconscious mind that i wrote about in subliminal and, and that's i wrote that because that's a huge uh has a huge effect on you and, and makes you do things that you don't realize why you're doing them and since you don't exactly know what the influences are that you're that cause you to do things since they aren't all logical decisions that really feels like free will um, the, uh, another term that comes up here, and I'm sorry for making you take us on a cook's tour of, uh, of modern science, but obviously people have kind of um, a vague idea of chaos theory or the butterfly effect in terms of the predictability of life, in terms of trying to understand why certain things happen or, or being able to know in advance that certain things will happen. Um, chaos theory helpful or more helpful at helping us recognize how hard it is to understand these things? Well, I think for most people, chaos is help. The chaos there is helpful only in that it, it it does point out to you how difficult it is to predict things. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what chaos theory tells you is that there are certain systems where, if what you know about them is not is not completely precise, if you're off by a small amount, then those systems will behave quite differently. Uh, it, it, their behavior in the future will differ by a large amount. That's called a chaotic system. And the weather is like that, and that's why we have trouble predicting the weather. The laws that govern the weather, no, you don't have to worry about quantum laws. I mean, the, the, the laws of gases and, and uh, the dynamics of uh, temperature and how 
different gases interact with heat is, are quite well known. The problem is it's a huge system with uh, many, 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 many uh, atoms in it, and that the laws are complicated enough that if you make a small change to, let's say, your measurement of what the temperatures and pressures are all over the, the state, and, and there's a small, and, and you're off by a little bit, that will cause a huge change in your prediction of the weather tomorrow or 10 days from now. So that, since that's a chaotic system, those systems are very hard to predict any distance into the future. You might be able to predict them five minutes from now, <laughs> with the weather were not too bad for tomorrow, but because of this sensitivity to our knowledge of the conditions today, our ability to predict things a week from now is very poor. All right. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. Leonard Mladenov, uh, scientist, uh, science writer, physicist, and the author of several books, including The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives, and Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. We're going to have to stop there. One thing that I would just sort of say by way of wrapping up this whole long, complicated conversation is, you know, sort of going back to what Mike and I were talking about at the beginning, we measure more things these days. I mean, we, because of big data, because of uh, Nate Silver and all of his imitators. We measure more things these days, and the more things that we measure, the more times the measurement will turn out to be misleading or that the predictive qualities of the measurement won't work kind of the way we thought they were going to work. Uh, and, and also that notion of calibration. If you're measuring the 90% probability of something, that still means that there's the 10% probability. It would be weird if it never happened, if there were a 10% probability. And that's something that I think we find very hard to understand. All right. Uh, we hope this helped. Um, doesn't really help you make your Kentucky Derby bet. Uh, all three producers of the show worked on this, as did Wolfie. Thanks to all of you, and we'll be back tomorrow. running that maze, do you think each of us rats has free will? Yeah, no, only some of us. What makes you say that? Well, because not everybody bought the DVD. Free will, not free willy. Oh, great. What's free will? Some boring remake? Ugh. <laughs>